See, mercy is what happens when the outcome should be bad, but instead it's good. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus called his disciples and said, they have been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry. I do not want them to collapse. From deep in the belly of a fish, I called for help and you listened to my cry. What do these well-known statements or stories in scripture have in common? Mercy. Specifically, the mercy of God. And sometimes that display of mercy is really big. It's a life-altering moment. Think miracle big. Still alive when I should be dead big. Saved by the grace of God big. Puked up by a fish big. And then sometimes it's really small. Maybe we forgot we left the curling iron on at home, and it, it could have caught something on fire, but it didn't. And, and maybe it wouldn't have anyways, but like, who knows? Maybe it's something minor. Maybe it's something so minor that we don't even think about it as mercy. But mercy is what happens when the outcome should be bad, and instead it's good. And the Psalms, they're full of mercy. Mercy is, is throughout so many Psalms. And the concept and the, and the verbiage of mercy, as well as the stories of mercy, are just packed into the Psalms. Psalm 86.5 says, Lord, you are good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all of them that call upon you. Psalm 94, 17 and 18 says, Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. When I said, my foot slipped, your mercy, O Lord, held me up. Psalm 103, 8 through 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. See, the thing about God and the thing about life and following Jesus and all these themes we talk about is that understanding God's mercy is what fuels compassion. And we've spent a lot of time as a church, talking about mercy in the context of our response to other people. 
We spend a lot of time talking about mercy in that it fuels compassion and that we need to be a certain way and we need to look, sound, live, function, breathe who Jesus is to other people and that we are responsible as followers of Jesus for making sure that the people that we connect with know Jesus and his mercy and compassion better because of how we treat them. This has been a huge theme of our story. We spent a lot of times in the gospel. And in the gospels, it's all about mercy and how Jesus treated the people that Jesus ran into. But what we haven't talked a lot about is about how the internalization personally of God's mercy towards us impacts our compassion towards ourselves and others. So today we're going to talk, excuse me, (coughs) we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the internalization of God's mercy in our own hearts, in our own lives. And as humans, there are two really major things that impact our ability to internalize God's mercy, to really internalize the fullness of God's mercy. And internalize is a word that means sort of embody or like fully experience. So it becomes so much a part of who we are that we don't even think about it. Internalization is like just super uh, natural at this point. It's so natural. um, It's like we don't even have to think about it because it's so a part of who we are. And so there are two things that significantly impact our ability to internalize God's mercy. And the first is our culture. Our culture has a really significant impact on our ability to internalize God's mercy. And I don't know that we talk about this a lot, but our culture views mercy both in receiving it for ourselves and extending it to someone else as weakness. Which might be hard to understand in the context that we are talking about today because we do think that everybody on some level wants the concept of mercy, right? Everybody on some level wants to know that when they screw up, maybe they don't have to suffer the consequences of it. But when you put mercy into the context of a highly productive culture, it changes. And here's why. Our culture believes that success is like the highest form of life. Highly productive, highly success-oriented components of culture impact our view of God's mercy because when our culture is pushing us to succeed and it's pushing us to be the very best and it's pushing us to never screw up because it might impact our ability to be the very best and to succeed at what we are doing, whether it is a job, a home situation, a hobby, whatever it is, our culture is pushing us to succeed and be productive and to never screw up. And simultaneously, our culture does not believe that mercy is a motivator for success. And so our culture is highly fixated on productivity and success. And that mercy cannot produce those results. And so our culture then believes wrongly, but still believes that shame is actually the highest motivator. 
So 90% of strategies to get our kids to do things, 90% of strategies bosses use to get their employees to do things, revolve around shame. Even the statements of, well, why didn't you do that when I asked you to? We're trying to ignite a shame response because we believe that shame will motivate someone to not do something again. We believe that shame will motivate someone into not screwing up. We believe that shame will get them to be successful in ways we don't even know we are doing or buying into. And this doesn't just stop at how we extend or uh, treat other people. It begins with us. And it often shows up the worst in ourselves. And many of us are capable of saying things to ourselves we would never say to someone else. We as people have bought into this messaging from our culture that we have to be the best. We have to be the most productive. We have to produce the best results, the most often, most reliable, most forward thinking, whatever it is, it has to be the best. And if we screw up, then we risk the promotion. We risk the success. We risk the accolades. We risk all of this. And so when we screw up, we've probably said things like, I am such an idiot. I can't believe I just did that. I am so useless. I should be doing better by now. I don't know why I'm doing this again. Others don't seem to make these dumb mistakes. I'm just not careful. I'm failing. These are merciless statements. Self-critical, judgmental of self statements. And the reason it is so hard to break these patterns and stop believing these messages and saying these words over ourselves is because we also view shame as a motivator. We've bought into the culture concept that shame motivates and it will motivate us. And so instead of thinking, I can't believe I just called myself dumb, we think this will motivate me. This will make sure that I don't make this mistake again. This will toughen me up. This will push me to excel. This will make me a better person. If I beat myself up, then I won't make this mistake again. We are so hard on ourselves when we mess up. Or we want something in our life to change. Because we believe we can shame ourselves into action. We believe we can shame ourselves into productivity. We believe we can shame ourselves into a different result next time. We believe we can shame ourselves into not screwing up. And we may even believe that that's what God wants too. Now that might be a little bit harder to buy into, but if we can't experience the fullness of God's mercy and his extension of mercy to us, 
when we screw up, then we will try to punish ourselves and beat ourselves up. Essentially, doing what we think is God's job for him. Because, well, if God isn't going to beat me up over this, then I need to, because he really should be. Because the enemy of our faith, Satan, wants to make sure that throughout our entire lives, throughout all of our encounters and experiences, that we never believe that God's mercy is enough for us. He wants to make sure that we believe that mercy isn't real. And if by some fraction of who God is and who we are, we come to this space where we say, okay, maybe God's mercy is real, then he's going to come in and say, yeah, but is it for you? See, Satan wins when we refuse the mercy of God by creating our own penance. And we might think that we're doing God's job for him. Or we might think this is what we deserve. But Satan wins when we refuse the mercy of God by creating our own penance. Because refusing the mercy of God really happens when we punish ourselves. But when the Bible talks about mercy, when the Bible talks about consequences, when the Bible talks about all of this, it's a compassionate and caring extension of something we could deserve, but we don't end up having. And we don't have to give ourselves what we deserve if he doesn't. Lamentations 3.22 says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Titus 3.5 says, he saved us not because, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. The second thing that impacts our ability to internalize the fullness of God's mercy is our wounds. Especially our childhood wounds. Due to the understanding the church holds as, as God as the Father, it can be really hard for us to detach God from our human influences growing up our human upbringing. And if we have any measure of inconsistency, any measure of unpredictability, any abuse at all of any type, our childhood experience can lead us to believe that the mercy of God is for everybody but us. And for most of us, these wounds will show up later in life as an offended heart. And sometimes rightly so. For the word offense means a resentment brought about by a perceived disregard to oneself. So here's where an offense between you and God, me and God, shows up. 
when we perceive that we've been disregarded. And I don't know about you, but I've walked through many a season in life where I perceive disregard, where I wonder where God is in my story. And most likely that offense got there in some really reasonable way, in that it's okay that you felt disregarded. Because man, that season was maybe really, really hard and really unfair and incredibly unjust. And if we have negative experiences throughout our life, our natural tendency will be to believe that we have been disregarded by God. Because at the core of who we are as people, we want to believe that God is good. And we want to believe that he is powerful. And we want to believe that his mercies are new every morning. And we want to believe that God died in our place and that God shows up in really big and miraculous and powerful ways and in really small ways. But it gets harder and harder to believe that the longer there is a perceived disregard. And over time, the moments that God doesn't show up begin to outweigh the moments that he does. And worse yet, maybe our wounds are really, really insurmountable in the pain that they have caused. And then when we come to church, we sing about how good God is and how incredible he is and how amazing he is and how, how wonderful he is. It gets harder and harder to understand why what happened to us happened to us. Because if God is this big, then why? Then why this? If God is this, then why this? It's why the number one question posed to Christians is, if God is real, then why do the bad things happen? But a barrier to experiencing the mercy of God is an offended heart. And there have been seasons of my own life where I'm in worship settings, where I'm in church, I am listening to worship music, or I'm reading scripture, and, and all the things that at one point I felt God through, I just don't feel it. And there are spaces where I've sat in worship, and I've just said, I'm not getting it. I'm not feeling what I want to feel. I'm not experiencing what I know I could experience. And while this could happen for a number of reasons, and the first response is usually to say, well, it's because the worship team picked a bad set of songs, um, it is not normally that situation. That, for me, in my own life, serves as a trigger that I need to examine the offenses in my own heart. And sometimes there's a space where I thought God would show up in a certain way, and he did not show up in that certain way. And that offense sits between me and God. And as I'm in worship, it serves as a barrier to the intimacy and experience of God's mercy. And acknowledging where there's an offense 
helps, and it's a great start. And sometimes it provides healing. And sometimes it's not enough. And there have been seasons in my life where I have had to say, God, in this moment, here in worship, here where I'm expecting to experience you, to feel you, to know you, to encounter you in a certain way, and to believe that, God, you have my own life in your hands, sometimes I just have to say, God, in this moment, I'm choosing to believe that the giver of life is not the giver of pain. God, in this moment, I'm choosing to let my hunger for you outweigh my need for answers. Because I may not get answers. But I'm hungry for the presence of God. And I am just going to pray this morning that wherever you sit in this conversation, and, and maybe there's no offense, and, and you and God are, are, are doing really well, and that's awesome, and wonderful, and, and live into that space, still examine to make sure, because they hide, they really do. But if you're in a space this morning where you're saying, I need answers, and I'm not getting them, I want to speak these words for us, over us, that the giver of life is not the giver of pain. And that our hunger for God might in this moment be able to outweigh just for a season even our need for answers.